There's nothing worse than a process that can make you feel like a part of something, not as an individual. And I suppose it always comes down to what the restaurant, in that case, wants to achieve. But what do you miss out on? Because if you've only got a process, um, and as much as the efficiencies of this, what do you sacrifice? Well, where does the efficiencies come from? Staff training, so you get high staff turnover. The value of somebody contributing. You still need that intermittently in any process. So are you getting somebody who is just literally ticking the boxes? Well, I think you know the answer is probably yes. And what do you miss out on? And is there longevity? And do we need that longevity anymore in terms of that customer service element? I think we do. I think people are really seeking that. How do you get 10,000 people to take a step to the left? What's behind the relentless mindset of a world champion? Why do teams of exceptional talent fail? How do you manage the pressure to perform? These are just some of the curious questions we will attempt to answer as we bring you world leaders, curious minds, exceptional talent, successful CEOs, and incredible human beings who know how to inspire great leaders and are inspiring great leaders themselves. I am Craig Johns, high performance leadership expert, international speaker, and CEO of Speakers Institute Corporate and World Sport Coach. This is the Inspiring Great Leaders podcast with Ordinary Don't Belong. Welcome to the Inspiring Great Leaders podcast. Our guest today is the founder of Wise Minds, is passionate about decluttering minds, and is dedicated to empowering female entrepreneurs by helping them unlock their potential. Behind her vibrant energy, Julie carries a wealth of life experiences that have shaped her both in and out of the boardroom. From her spirited childhood in Bristol to embarking on an entrepreneurial journey driven by her love for animals and countless fundraising endeavors. Her career has included more than 20 years working at Specsavers, including country manager for the Netherlands. Today, I'm armed with invaluable knowledge gained from her leadership role. She becomes a dedicated business mentor, applying her wisdom and guiding those who embark on the wise mind's journey toward clarity and triumph. She's a woman of many dimensions, from studying at Inseed and London Business School to conquering the slopes on skis and diving into wild water adventures. Julie Perkins. Julie, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much for having me, Craig. I'll take you on my next sales pitch. That sounded really, really great. So I was getting into the story and then I realized it was me. <laughs> yeah. Beautiful. Anytime, anytime uh, you can fly me over to Europe, more than happy to help you. <laughs> now, uh, Bristol and Netherlands are quite opposites in themselves, but I'd love to know what it was it like growing up as a spirited child in Bristol, and what was the big dream when you were running around the playground with your friends? Well, yes, I mean, it's a great starting point. Uh, I'll have to add a bit of Guernsey in there. I come from um, a very sort of highly paced entrepreneurial family, and that has been part of my life from child in Bristol to when we moved to Guernsey and then onwards when I moved into Europe. Um, and running around with friends, I can remember from a very early age, that entrepreneurial spirit, and you touched on the animal front, and um, I was known in the street for always having little street sales, where I'd gather all these uh, little items and sell them to raise money for the RSPCA. I'm not sure what that's called down in Australia, yeah, but, you same. know, protection for animals. Oh, same one. And, um, and that whole beautiful outdoors and, and the gathering of people. And I think that was the thing from coming from an entrepreneurial family, you always had a lot of people around. And I think I always enjoyed that uh, with friends and, you know, taking those little stalls on the street and being a part of 
the sort of the, the culture of the street and uh, I loved it. Um, so I suppose when I was little, I, I'd be lying to say it was horses and animals. And if I could have been a vet or somewhere out in the sea, I would have been more than happy. And I lived my life like that and I still reflect it. You know, the mountains, the sea uh, is definitely my favorite places to be for sure. So I'm curious then, obviously that was the dream, you know, being a marine biologist or a vet or something similar, but but what allowed you to shift to go into more of a corporate life? What, what, what was the decision around that? Well, I think um, really born of curiosity. And when you're in an entrepreneurial family, you're sort of being, you, you hear you're a part of that curiosity all the time. And I think with the expansion of Specsavers, it, it really caught that imagination and that want to go in and take a concept and make that happen mm. in terms of curiosity. Before that, I think um, I nearly did become a teacher. Yeah, right. because I worked out in the United States for a couple of years and that, that want to be able to pass on different ideas to kids. I was working out uh, in a summer camp and I always remember this kid, I've never forgotten. And uh, he came back the second year and he said, I've named my hamster after you, Jules. And I've never forgotten that 30 years. And I just thought, that's when you touch someone's life in a way that something stays. And I've always enjoyed that. And perhaps, as they say, all dots are connected. Uh, perhaps that's one of the big reasons of why I've ended up with Wise Minds and also taking the new concept into Northern Europe and the Netherlands, because there's that joy of passing on and seeing how you can gather uh, people together to, to unite. And I think that, or to learn something. And I think that is definitely the basis of me for sure. Mm. And that's been a very interesting part of my life. Yeah. The, the influence of your parents, you're talking about being entrepreneurs, you know, what sort of things were they uh, focused on in regards to being an entrepreneur and and what did you I suppose what rubbed off on you in regards to the way they approached the entrepreneurial journey themselves yeah well first of all no one ever complains about work no one ever walks in and says they had a bad day um, you know because everything's challenges um, you know there isn't failure there's just how can we do it better and I think that's where this curiosity comes from I think also that style of leadership in a very early startup, in very early sort of challenges, you have this um, knowledge really that it's about gathering people and, you know, not formally, but how do you gather the right people that are similar, that have got energy, that mm. are the people that are going to help you on your journey? And I think that's what I grew up with. You know, we, me and my mates always used to earn all of, you know, the massive sum of two pounds an hour to serve drinks at, at house functions. I mean, yep. there's something about child labor or serving alcohol under 18, but I think we got away with it in those days. <laughs> uh, and so we always had a job, which was, um, which was interesting. We always earned money, do and then earn. Um, and then you met amazing people and you hear and you see, it must be subconsciously, because when you're 13, 14, it's not on top of your agenda something captures that beautiful thing when you gather people together and you see people having fun and they're there for a reason to, to grow a company. And I think that gathering of people is something that very much has stuck with me. And how do you unite? I'm not a particularly structured person, but in terms of gathering and unifying people, I think that's something that was passed to me for sure. And I, I see that as such an important part of getting it right um, today. But it did start from two pounds an hour. We were big earners in that, in our school group. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. I bet. Now, you know, for you, you've traveled around a little bit. You've You've lived in Europe for quite a long time now. What of those, I mean, Europe's a great place, right? Every country's got its mm -hmm. own culture, even though it's so close to each other, they're very, very different. 
Uh, how has that served you in regards to the way you look at leadership and the way you look at even business because of that exposure to so many different places and cultures? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the Netherlands taught me an incredible amount about collaboration. You know, they've got a collaborative government, uh, coalition government. They've got um, many parties in that. And I think that is very much reflective of how the Dutch people work. And they they very much work on getting people involved. It doesn't really matter about the hierarchical level. And that was something that I learned bringing Specsavers into the Netherlands, um, the importance of getting people around the table. And I think there was a difference between me, three Netherlands, and post. And I think I was taught very much by everybody about the openness of how to make a team. And I think I come from this sort of very more traditional sort of hierarchical this position, et cetera, et cetera. And I think the Netherlands has got a beautiful way of collaborating. And, and I think that's why it's so strong today for its startup, for gathering people in these hubs. They've got a good way of working together and thinking open-minded. And, and the big outcome of that is listening to others, listening to other people's ideas and being open to it, rather than it being on that old-fashioned more seniority, which is obviously I'm talking a long time ago. But yeah. I think the Netherlands taught me that. And, you know, that journey of opening up a startup in one of the most competitive marketplaces that still Specsavers is in, you know, taught me the power of getting the right people around the table and leading them. I mean, I'm sounding like an angel now. Uh, I, trust me, my greatest learnings came from... Um, you know, learning that I sound like it was like, oh, right, thank you. I'll start on that tomorrow. But of course, you know, I was in my late 20s and that journey of moving with United people and how you can make them, you know, move in that same direction. As you say, 10,000 people move to the left, you know, in terms of that, how do you get that to move? And I think that's such a learning thing in leadership, especially at a young age. Um, and learning from failure mm. and what works. I think that's very important. But I think I love the way the Netherlands works. That collaboration is incredibly strong. And and my experiences here taught me that for sure. Mm. So talking about, you know, Specsavers, you mentioned there about setting up Specsavers in a country. Were you working for Specsavers prior to going into Netherlands and... Uh, and how did the opportunity come about to go, hey, you know what, let's let's create Specsavers in a brand new country. And you know what, I'm going to go into Netherlands and do this for you. Well, I was working for Specsavers uh, previous to that. And um, it was a new opportunity. It was one of exploring. It was a big opportunity. Um, and we started investigating it. And I think... That was the beginning of discovering that people weren't waiting for us to arrive. And I think when you're a market leader in the UK and then suddenly taking it into a new country, there's when it's your first, you know, sort of journey out of the mothership, you're, you, there is a level of learning as well. Mm. And I think I definitely wanted to be a part of that. Uh, I'm generation two for Specsavers. Um, my parents' generation one founders. So I think myself and Doug began that journey together with a few other people. And that learning, that sort of, um, that curiosity, um, I think really taught us a lot about how to open up in a new country. And of course, people would argue, is that a startup? And I think it is. And your first, you might as well count for nothing, you know, mm. that first lesson. People weren't waiting for you know, being saved. They, you know, they were quite happy with what was here. So how we learned about that um, and, and how we sort of investigated how to open up into a new country and how to lead a new brand that was unknown, um, I think was some of the greatest learnings of leadership at the time for me personally and now have shaped my future, for sure. 
because it's really raw. <laughs> you know, when you're in a startup, it's raw oh, and yeah. you have to draw upon everything. Yeah. And you have to be very quick to accept failure and go, right, what have I done? What have I done? What have I done? So I, I learned a lot there, for sure. You're full of surprises. So so your parents started Specsavers. Did I catch that? That's right. Okay. So they started back in the sort of late 80s. And then I went on and worked within the company. I, you know, after teaching out in the States, that part of being, it was rapidly growing. Mm. I loved the excitement. I, you know, opening up stores and being there at the cliff face. There's no more exciting uh, way to spend, mm. you know, job. I, a very, very few people say that. I've got nothing to whinge about in my career. I've loved every moment of it. And it wasn't always easy, but um the experience was just a lot of fun and a lot of learning. And I think that really reflects who I was, as you asked at the beginning, that child running around the playground was the curious, you know, the, the, who was there? Who, who will I be friends with? Who will I not? What will I do? What, there was just, you know, ever investigatory part of me. And I think it just suited me doing that. And um and 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 taking it forward into a new country and being a part of its growth, it was absolutely fantastic. Yeah, from an entrepreneurial point of view, that this is quite fascinating. We were talking to someone the other day around franchising, and when you look at franchising, say you're in one country and you start to franchise out, like in somewhat, I'm not sure if Specsavers back then for your parents was around franchising in the UK or they just owned all the stores but there's one thing doing it in a country where you pretty much understand how that country works and what your competitors are what the dynamics are what are the the behaviors of your clients and customers to then move into another country it is like you say pretty much a startup although you do have a playbook and and some uh, some role models or, or guides and leaders in a way, but you, you're somewhat running into a a whole new territory that normally requires someone who understands the how things work in that country. And so for you to come in, I, I don't know, did you have any background in Netherlands before you bought Specsavers in no. or, or you just like um, totally blind, so to speak? <laughs> Well, we we did have a we did have a, a fellow Dutchman uh, who we're working with and guided, but it is about exploring, and I think it is about understanding that local strength. And every single one of our Specsaver stores, even down in um, in Australia and New Zealand, is owned by local yep. Australian, in your case, optometrists. So, of course, in every town, in every community, you overcome that because everybody's owned by a local person. Um, and I think that's a very beautiful way of doing it with more, also joint venture partnership than franchising, because that locality you're building, you know, it's like you've got that global force, but you've got that local touch. But that requires a very important way of leading as well. Mm. Because if you want that partnership to be strong and take into account that locality, as well as the global, you've got to find that balance. And a leading partnership, I think, is something that is really interesting. And 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 also in in corporate, in the in the support offices as well, is that you know, Specsavers grew with three and a half thousand partners all over the world, and it continues to. Fantastic. But that's its power. And I think there's a lot of learning from that balance in support offices and also in corporate leadership. Definitely in startup leadership, which is what I coach today. So um, I think there's a lot to be learned for sure. <laughs> so if, if I think back to when you would have started um, Specsavers Netherlands, so 20 years ago, approximately, maybe a little bit longer, it was kind of that early phase of online shopping, so to speak, you know, very, very early. And, and I suppose as you're navigating launching in a country how did both yourself and the company navigate the changing consumer behaviors when it came to how they order stuff how they buy things did, did that have an effect on spec savers or is it something that really needs you to go into the actual shop or the actual clinic or wherever it may be mm -hmm. 
because you need to figure out what your prescription is. Yeah. You asked me earlier, what did I learn from from the role models? Well, my father always taught me, said, always look to the customer five years in advance. Mm. And I think that's such an interesting concept. He said, I always carried around uh, an A4 sheet of paper with what I assumed would be five years. And, you know, in terms of how he set up that future, he's always looking towards that technology for the future. So in terms of thinking, I think Specsavers was very much ahead and trying to balance that need, because of course there's a huge age range, trying to balance what personal service, what face-to-face service is required, as well as how can we make that journey as um, as efficient and as effective for the customer as we possibly could. What's going to be the needs of the on um, the future journey, and that's very much in terms of the healthcare of an aging population. And but interestingly, he taught me always to go into suppliers, which we were doing here, and not only to when you're trying to find the right suppliers to suit you. And of course, years on, we've now have very established suppliers. Right at the beginning, always ask to see the successor, always ask to see the successor, so that you know that your balance of partnership and your longevity and your commitment is equal to those that you're gathering. And I think that was one of the big lessons of leading an ecosystem in a new country. Because when leadership today, it's not just the direct team as we know, it's how do you lead the next level, the indirect teams, the suppliers, the alliances, and how do you align, especially in today's world where digitalization is so rapid, how do you decide what to digitalize and how do you unite people that you're not sat in an office with anymore, whether they're hybrid working, et cetera, or big suppliers? And I think that's something you learn very rapidly when you go into a new country is how do you unite people that you don't, forgive the expression, own as such? You don't own anyone, but you know, the directness in, in terms of the people you see every day. And I think that leadership is, is very important in the startup world mm. and today. Uh, for sure. Um, so I think that prediction, how did it affect? I think it's always trying to find the balance of customer first. What do they need? What are they going to need in five years' time? Um, but as with all countries around the world, that accelerated during COVID. And I mm. think now the the local supply of products, the local supply of manufacturing to high quality is very, very important. That quick reaction, that being able to dance with what the customers need at every stage, not obviously just through a, a pandemic, but why not do translate what your learnings were there in time to maintain that dance with the customer every day? Again, very important what I do now with the leadership of young people of leading their ecosystems, which you know are very complex in these high startups. Yeah. Uh, how do you unite? And that's, that's an interesting one, especially learned from from early Specsavers days for me, for sure. Uh, when I think about the name of your company, Wise Minds, it, it, um, it reflects a well on your dad, you know, thinking five years in advance. I, I'm kind of curious, and, and maybe if, if you put about your Specsavers hat on, you know, in five years' time, are we going to be at a point where we can look at the phone, it can scan our eyes, it sends it off to a 3D printer, everything's automated and there's no need for humans anymore uh, in stores. It literally happens from anywhere on the train, plane, bus, bedroom, um, beach. We can actually create our spec savers and it flies in by a drone and drops it off after it's been printed. It, 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 it sounds that, amazing. <laughs> like it well, can't be too far well, away. Is, is five years possible? You know, things right. are moving so fast. I think the most important thing, as you're saying, is find the balance of people. And a lot of the way the customer decides what the innovation is, going back from that in five years' time, technology is huge. And that will be very different for different people about what their needs are, you know, with the young people being open to uh, technology, et cetera, um, and in terms of an aging population of what they need. And it's very much decided by what that customer needs. How do we support an aging population? 
And this is where Specsavers has a huge role, not just in digitalization and accessibility, but also in understanding what the care needs are for an aging population. And that's in terms of extension. There's a, the eye is an incredible thing. Of course, we do hearing as well. Uh, so that definitely always begins to move. What the role of humans are, well, that's always up to um, up to the balance of. And I think with humans, that advice, that necessity is a very important thing about how do we gain the knowledge to make the best decisions for ourselves? And I think that role of how does that human interact? But technology is incredible and uh, it's going to always be the balance of both for sure. Um, and, and not everything suits every age group. And I think it's trying to find that balance in terms of the leadership. I'm not so much in the boardroom respect savers anymore, but I know that that's their philosophy in trying to still work with a very, very um, widespread customer to understand what their needs are. And they are the decision makers, ultimately, for what that digitalization is in the future. But the one thing we know is how can we become part of the primary health in order to be able to keep um, uh, health also on the agenda and play our role in that. So um, it's interesting times for sure. Drones, I quite like the idea of. Uh, <laughs> in terms of having that delivered, I have to battle through traffic, I'll take that one for sure. But of course, efficiency of uh, delivery and logistics is key in all areas right now. So it's definitely a, um, an area, an industry to watch for sure. You know, I find this fascinating. I managed to, um, I actually, I just, I was at a set of lights back in February. Yeah, it was in February. I picked up my glasses and I had a little wipe, like a, a cleaning wipe. I went to clean my glasses and they snapped in the middle. I was <laughs> then on stage for three days um, and had to travel as well. And I did not have a backup pier with me. So I was literally going Sydney and then I was flying um, to another location. And so I was out without uh, glasses for a week before I could get access to one, etc. So I had to go blind. And, and I was fascinated. It still took two weeks to get a, a set of prescription glasses because of my my eyes, the prescription I have. And I just find it fascinating with all the technology and development we've had that it still takes that long to get a pair of glasses. I, I'm yeah. fascinated. So I, I feel there's a lot of scope in the world of glasses, and we'll move on from this in a second, yeah. To, yeah. to speed this up. Like to me, the, the process is still involved in getting a pair of glasses is very long in many cases. Yeah. I'm looking forward to seeing how technology can speed that up over the next yeah. five years. And I think logistics has got a big part of that. And the more that we can put in terms of local supply and keep that, obviously, the price to the customer, um, you know, affordable, two pairs. And, you know, my mum, you know, Savers was born out of my mum saying, I want everybody to have as many pairs of glasses as an optician's partner, as a pair of shoes. And in terms of that, bringing down the cost, giving people yeah. that choice and accessibility, they haven't got to rely on it becoming quickly to you. But also in terms of how do we shorten that time? Because they are bespoke. You know, there's only one person that suits those wonderful glasses you're wearing today, Craig, and that's you. So, you know, they are bespoke. But it's, you know, trying to shorten that and make it effective is, is, is absolutely key for sure. God bless anyone who tries to wear these glasses because it would be, it's not going to look that good. Um, <laughs> e Thinking, you know, you're talking about working with a, a lot of people under the age of 30 in a way who pretty much grew up their entire life with electronics and digital devices, etc. I'm curious if you put your, your hat on and you think forward five years, is there a potential where we're going to see the, the generations that are currently 30 years and younger craving, craving human and reducing the amount of technology in their world. Like I see it coming. I, I'm, you know, there's so much talk about artificial intelligence and technology. Um, I think human intelligence is gonna kick in. I, I really do. I, I see a shift where we're going to be craving the human side. What do you think? I definitely would agree. And I, you know, I keep saying in terms of, let me to sort of repeat myself on the balance of, but for example, um, when I'm working with under 30s, 
And last night had this of conversation with two women, uh, highly, you know, intelligent on engineering, A1, mathematics, you know, if you wanted to list qualifications, you know, you'd still be five minutes into your show, Craig, with listing theirs. Hmm. But one thing about the balance is they've got an incredible product. And this product is unbelievable. I was like, oh my gosh, that's that's amazing. But that intertwining with human reaction and understanding human behavior takes an app. And if you can intertwine it with human behavior, it makes it even more useful. And perhaps their block was themselves is that their qualification and their want to create this incredibly useful thing is only useful if it fits in with how humans are. Mm. And, you know, technology is moving quicker than our human brain and how we work. So you might have the greatest thing that will save, you know, 40 hours a week for the average health provider. But in terms of how do you integrate that into an existing platform and a way of doing things? And I think with young people, working with them and, you know, as the wiseness, it's not telling them, but understanding how their technology needs to work in with human behavior and how they can lead that, I think opens up the fact that it's not one thing. It can't just be the digital, it can't just be the option. And this is where I come back to purpose. And this is where I very much work with young people saying, as long as your app or your technology or product has interactions with humans today, you have to be able to lead it through humans. You have to be able to understand what that need and that purpose is. Otherwise, you could be having an amazing app, but it's not useful <laughs> yeah. because it's not sort of so many people. I was sort of say that, you know, electricity, everyone thinks it's amazing. But the one of my favorite books, Digital Darwinism, or Darwinism it says that actually electricity took three decades to come into play. Mm. And it was used for so long on people's rich people's candles on their Christmas tree because the space for it, the way we thought about electricity. And I think that's the balance. And I think that that's why we can never be one or the other. And I think understanding how technology and digitalization, it opens up different ways of thinking. And I think that young people need to swing back into that. I don't think they've ever left it, but I think they need to understand how the balance needs to be achieved for, so that they can make their amazing things really work it, and be useful. Yeah, yeah, interesting. You know, and and you know, thinking about entrepreneurs in a way, uh, especially if you're looking at kind of that that digital tech startup kind of space, unless you're actually solving a human problem or you are able to be relevant from an entertainment point of view, it is very difficult to survive. Mm. You know, you've got to have, you can't just be a bit of piece of candy that kind of, um, you know, lights up our hormones for a little bit and we, and we feel alive for a little bit. It actually needs to solve a problem for it to have longevity. So yeah. are we seeing with, you know, entrepreneurs that you're working with or, or even an entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial movement around the world that people are really looking to solve proper human problems or are they or they just yeah. got these bright ideas and they're just giving it a crack? I think it's obviously, that's the whole thing, it's a mixture of both. And, you know, there is an incredible amount of social responsibility, I think, in young people. And I work with people who are looking at the circular economy to keep uh, jeans and clothes in play, but in a in a sort of financially beneficial way as mm. well, um, but not stopping the sort of the use of a lot of materials to um, more accessible education in the Meno region, uh, in poorer countries, and and I think that there is amazing things going on there, as well as the apps and the software that are going to make people more productive, yeah. but they all involve humans. So as much as we want to say that, you know, our eyes are going to be tested with the iPhone or, um, you know, um, the our, our productivity issues is going to be solved with a software button, 
you've got to understand the human behavior you're trying to solve. Humans will always be a part of it. And if you don't know how to interact with humans and why that balances that behavior and makes us more so, it's very misaligned. Mm. And there's some great ideas, which hopefully, touch wood, I'll save a little bit, uh, that, you know, when you look at it in a different way from your customer's point of view, it actually go, oh, right, that's the problem. Because you're looking at it from what you think is the problem. And if you put the customer in front, the customer in five years' time, or in the case of technology, it's probably five minutes' time. But, you know, in terms of driving that forward, it's a massive part of, of lead, leading change um, and leading change in, in, in organizations as well as in startups, which is obviously uh, the greatest fun for me mm. is being able to support them on that. I think... Uh, you know, you've got the greatest thing in the world and you can't think, why is it not going anywhere? Because we've forgotten the human problem, mm. perhaps. Big statements, but in a lot of cases. Uh, interesting. I, I'm watching a lot of people who have an entrepreneurial mindset, but sometimes, you know, they're looking at efficiencies in the world and, you know, using, let's say we're using technology, um, not specifically always artificial intelligence, but we're looking at technology to what they think is making things more efficient. And quite often they will look to the efficiencies from a business point of view, but forget the people on the other side. You know, I'll take a, a point in case, um, QR codes at restaurants. So QR codes yeah. at restaurants, uh, in most cases is the most, it, it, it extends our time as a customer, especially if we've got a big group. You know, how, how do we take this order with a big group and get it done fast? Um, you know, do, does everyone open up their phones and order themselves or do we pass around a phone? Everyone's going to look through the menu, select which one. So, and and to me, I think those kind of things, they've maybe got it wrong. Like, like to me, they've got it wrong yeah. because yes, you need to make businesses more efficient, but we need to think about the whole ecosystem in a way. Um, the same is... Uh, I'm not sure if it's the same over there, but definitely here. Banks think it's more efficient to take the humans out of customer service and yeah. have you sit on a answering message, dial this four, five, ten, whatever number it is, and you do that five times, and then you sit waiting for an hour before you talk to a human. Yeah. I think they've lost the plot, personally. I, I, f yeah. I really do. That, that is the total opposite of customer service. All you've done is save some money off the bottom line um but indirectly where are you losing money and how much money are you losing because yeah. you're not actually solving a customer human problem you're just solving a business efficiency problem or, or yeah. i mean it is where companies uh, if you hadn't read restaurants i was going to come up with banks because that's my really um it, it's where process has overtaken sense it's yep. all, all in the terms of of the customer and you know where it becomes you're passing through a lot of people and there's nothing worse than a process that can make you feel like a part of something not as an individual and i suppose it always comes down to what the restaurant in that case wants to achieve but what do you miss out on because if you've only got a process um, and as much as the efficiencies of this, what do you sacrifice? Well, where does the efficiencies come mm. from? Staff training, so you get half, high staff turnover, the value of somebody contributing. You still need that intermittently in any process. So are you getting somebody who is just literally ticking the boxes? Well, I think we know the answer is probably yes. And what do you miss out on? And is there longevity? And do we need that longevity anymore in terms of that customer service element? I think we do. I think people are really seeking that. Um, and when you're a part of a process, let's take the QR code. And what do you miss out on? What's good today? What's local? Mm. You know, what's changes? If everything's a QR code, then it's the same, um, uh, the same product. Now, that's great if you're going into company that represents that. I think that's brilliant because it does what it says on the tin. But all these restaurants where QR codes is, it's so annoying because you've got to scroll down, you think what was at the top and all this stuff. So it suits where 
the product says that's what it's going to do. I like going in and doing my own barcoding. And especially in clothes shops where you do your own, it does wait and you pay for yourself and leave. I like that. But I go to buy a specific thing. I think as long as it, if that's what the customer wants, they want that efficiency, but it doesn't fit all. That would be my viewpoint. It's certainly, and I think that's the leadership element of, I don't know what it's like down in Australia, but you know, decide what that customer is, decide what your business model is. And the most important question, decide what you're going to digitalize. Decide where it does fit in because it doesn't fit in everywhere. And I think with COVID and pandemic, you know, digitalization's a huge part. And that puts people into panic. But where do you ask yourself the question, what is that customer journey? What are they feeling? What do they want? And and where does digitalization really matter? Because I think if you take the account with banks, sometimes it does. Payments, brilliant. But if I've got advice or I want advice on whether to take a mortgage, and I've done four presses of a button and gone round everywhere, it's gone. So I think it's understanding customer first. And I think that's really where we can't ever become um, one way of doing it. I think that it, it really is that way of... Um, of innovation, I think it will innovate back. I think as all these things, the pendulum swings and agility is as important as resi- as resilient companies and finding a process. But as soon as you start living your process by, uh, sorry, living your growth by process, you write the stories of, you know, Kodak, Blockbusters and the rest of the graveyard, you know. Uh, and I think that's an important aspect in terms of, of leading um, concept as well as people. So yeah, it's the balance. All right, I, I think uh, your, <laughs> your answer there has created a new word in my mind for the Oxford Dictionary in the next five years and it's called ProSense. Um, so the mixture of process and common sense. Um, yes. There we go, and it, it kind of rolls off the tongue fairly well, ProSense. So there we go, <laughs> if anyone else there wants to get that in the dictionary, um, I don't care if you credit me or not, uh, or, or this conversation, yeah, let's get it in the dictionary. Let's get it in the vocabulary of our Well, it's got to be leaders. used five times. Five if it's times. going to be a dictionary, it's got to be in print. I think it's five times. It's got to be in five different concepts, and then it will be considered. I think that's the ruling. Five times. All right. That's very good. I, I'll, I'll work on that. We were a lot of speakers and thought leaders, so I'll, uh, I'll delve a little bit into how you do get into the dictionary because I think it's uh, fascinating. <laughs> All right. Let's say let's, uh, we're talking a lot about entrepreneurs here. I think over the last couple of years, we've seen quite a rise in people delving into or dabbling into or diving headfirst into entrepreneurship with, you know, the, how do I want to live? Do I want to be working for someone else? Do I want to have that entrepreneurial journey? I, is that what you're seeing? Has there been quite an influx in it over the last couple of years? And what are we seeing in potentially the shift in dynamic or in the, in the type of people that are becoming entrepreneurs? What are you seeing? Well, I think obviously working with young people, um, that is definitely a favorable journey. They have such a passion to make change for the better and um, how they see life is very, very strong. They're, you know, they're sort of the way that they've been brought up in that generation. It very much suits challenge, being curious, taking, uh, taking risk, you know, whereas, you know, back in our day, it was right in terms of the, of, of the career and being a little bit more rest assured. But I think this way of looking at the world and wanting to be a part of its change opens up entrepreneurship and starting up companies um, in a very strong way. And especially here in the in the Netherlands, which is very much suited towards entrepreneurship with hubs, with more freelance, it's very much encouraged. But so I sort of say very politely in a, in a coaching way about being an entrepreneur, people normally find me when they've lost the fun and love in what they're mm-hmm. doing, is that it's not all about choice. And yep. um, and we spend a lot of time looking at the origin of why you've taken those choices to make it more realistic about what freedom truly means and what joy 
growing your own business is, because it's very important. Because if you think it's about sort of going to the sauna when you want, which I don't think many people do, but if that's not the freedom it brings. It's a roller coaster. Mm. But the beautiful thing is once they define what freedom is to them and their values and who they are, that roller coaster is a lot easier to be on. Because, you know, as we know, entrepreneurs got to wear a lot of hats, but I always say, put your hat on first. And that helps you be able to lead all these different case scenarios that are happening in your day. But they often arrive with, oh my gosh, why don't I love what I loved so much two years ago? And that's a really hard thing to say, to break that down and to put it back in a different way. I think I see a lot of that. Mm. Um, freedom doesn't mean you've got time. Freedom means you have choice on how you spend that time. I think that's a very important definition for entrepreneurs. Yeah, but a tongue in cheek, you know, we talk about uh, that they have the saying, do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. And, uh, you know, I can add another one to this that um, own your own business and never work a harder day. Uh, you'll, you'll work a harder, you'll never work a more harder day in your life um, as an entrepreneur because it is, it's, it's, you cannot stop mm. it. It's relentless unless you're very mm. savvy and clever at being able to build a business fast and empower people to take over the reins. And that, that is, yeah. There are not too many Richard Bransons in this no. world. No. Um, and there are not too many people that are successful working four hours a week either, by the way. No. Listening in. no, for that great for that great title, I, exactly. And, um, but, but it's very interesting. There's, there's a lot I've learned from young people. And I work sort of, you know, I, I keep going back to the young people because that's who's in my life at the moment a lot. And what I love about their efficiency uh, is that once they get their values and they get that sort of grounding part, is what they can achieve in a short amount of time. Mm. And it's taught me that perhaps I overthink, perhaps that in my past I've overthought on certain case scenarios. And that beautiful trial and error, I'm never going to fall, once sort of guided going, or perhaps you may, it, it is actually this beautiful speed and efficiency that they can get things done and their networks are huge you know i come i go you know for a week and i say what you need is this they come back and go these are my choices and i go oh my goodness you know it, you know they have this incredible drive and energy to make things better and i think they've taught me a lot on that about not overthinking perfectionism and mm actually trial and error of what it should really like, be like as a leader in a startup. Um, and then sort of hopefully guiding a little bit by a few guardrails would help. But, you know, ultimately that power and that drive is is a wonderful thing to work with. You know, there's a lot of people who talk about, you know, the, the world of instant gratification. Um, and, and it seems to be a little bit contradictory in a way to, you know, what you're talking about here for these young entrepreneurs. It is, they, they're looking at something bigger. And so it's, it's quite an interesting balance between where the world is at. And, and it's not just the, like to me, everyone's into instant gratification now. It mm. is what technology has enabled for us. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I really love, when I hear that people want to make a difference and, and things like that, but they have this instant gratification in other parts of their life. I'm curious that how, how these young entrepreneurs are going to be able to sustain the highs and lows, the resilience that they're going to need. Because for many of them, they've grown up in a pretty easy world. You know, mm -hmm. world these days are generally a lot easier than what they were when, say, we grew up in a way or our, our parents, etc. Uh, I'm fascinated. How, how do you think the sustainability and longevity of the young entrepreneurs are going to go? Do you kind of have any insights or do you, do mm -hmm. you feel like it's no different to what we've had in the past? What are you sensing? Uh, well, um, new toys, new shiny things. Uh, it's going to be a part of every entrepreneur. Um, but what we do and what I think is very, very important um, is that you need that drive as an entrepreneur. And I sort of, what I think sometimes used to annoy me, I, I celebrate, you know, that want to keep driving through. But the challenge is, is to take your purpose and values with you 
as a person. Mm. And that's the grounding part. It's not to change the character of somebody or whatever age. It's to say, ground it. Ground it with your values on who you are. We do a lot of work on what your voice and inner voice is because that's your stable or stable situation, whether you've come from an easier life, uh, whether you've brought up in Europe, but don't forget the Netherlands is a big melting pot. So we're often dealing with people that haven't had the easiest start to life. But how do you take that and make that powerful for the future, whether it's been easy or not easy? How do you power that into what you decide to do? And I always say that's like your guiding rod. When you're going on that roller coaster and you don't know how to make that choice, you don't know how to make the decisions going mm -hmm. forward, and the whole world seems to be spinning, go back and we very, very carefully define purpose and the main core values, the lens through which you see life, and use that as your partner. Use your definition of who you are because that's your stabilizing rod really on that journey and that's really the basis of leader i'm often asked by young people which book should i read to be a leader and i first go well you decide what you're going to be a leader of first so you've got the vision um but also start with leading yourself so you can read every book which is normally based a lot on competency behavior but you've got to decide who you are first mm. otherwise you'll just be spinning around on that you'll be adding another thing to the to-do list Decide what you want to be a leader of and then decide who you are first. And I think that that's the most wonderful thing about my job. And they realize they can read as many books as they want, which we actively encourage, of course. But when they actually realize, they go, yeah, they feel much clearer about who I am now. And they start speaking a lot clearer about what they want just by that one exercise alone. So that would be my greatest piece of advice. Uh, and, and someone telling me that in my 20s would have been like, really? Is that really? But truly, defining purpose and values of yourself, the main core values which you look at, your, like um, you make decisions by your lens, what rules you, what makes you happy, is the beginning of, I think, creating young leaders of today that will have an influence for sure. Okay, are there any rules in entrepreneurship? And if there are, what would your top three be? Rules? Um, I think, well, describe the first one. I think decide who you are and try and be consistent with it uh, because it's very much spinning around and you are leading every day a melting pot, um, you know, a whole sort of galaxy of, of, of problems. And I think people even when they're excited about bootstrapping and stuff, want stability. And that's you. They don't need you going with the latest phase or stuff. They need to know, is this person in it for the long term? Yeah. Number two, define the purpose and vision of that organization. Fine, nothing new there. But don't own the vision. Don't own the picture of that vision. Your job as a leader of a young startup or a beginning company is to make people curious to go on the journey towards that vision. Because what often happens is that you think you've got to own the picture. So you're putting yourself in the way. That would be my number two rule. And number three would be make yourself redundant on a regular basis cool. uh, because it's so quick moving. And I made that mistake and I learned by that failure to hold on too tight. Growth is a series of waves. And if you hold on to two, you will slowly drown in the middle, uh, what everyone calls sort of um, early maturity. So look at it yourself, say, what am I doing that I don't want to do? Where should I be? Where should I position myself? And I think in early startup, I would be doing that on a quarterly basis. Those would be my three rules. <laughs> right. Make yourself redundant. Um, that is something that, uh, that I said before the first day um we created speakers institute corporate with my business partner and it is the reason why we were able to scale really really fast and i you know if you a lot of people go into entrepreneurship because they're passionate about something and want to do something because they're good at it um if you that's okay if it just if you want it to just be you and keep it a small business that's absolutely fine yeah. but if you want to scale you've got to adopt a completely different approach 
um, and about yeah. making it not about you at all. Otherwise, it becomes very difficult yeah. to scale. Very difficult. What was your What was your first redundancy moment then, uh, in terms of for your business that had the greatest growth for you? Yep. So we did this by accident. This was somewhat of an accident. I did make a a decision, but didn't realize the ramification of how good the decision was at the beginning. And that was in the first year of business, I delivered zero services, zero. And my business partner delivered one a quarter. Now, when you're thinking about a corporate training or thought leadership company, I don't know anyone else that's done that. I don't. And and if you can find one, great, because I'd love to speak with them about how they did it as well. So it's kind of by accident, but it meant that I, there is no face to the organization. Now, my business partner is uh, a top 20 keynote speaker in the world, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, and I've had a background in doing lots of things as well. It is, it meant we could unleash the power of possibility with the organization. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was that was number one. The, the most difficult thing that we haven't, that I haven't been able to release myself from, there's one, apart from, I suppose, key leadership areas and, and business things yeah. that you've still got to look after, um, is business development. Because we're so mm. bespoke, we are co creating all the time. It's so complex. We, If you're in business development of a bespoke service organization, you have to understand what are your, your all the curriculum and products you already have. You've also got to understand the capability of the people that work with you and what the possibilities are when you combine those capabilities into what the what it could look like. And you've also got to understand how program design works and be able to articulate from there to there, um, and then make it relevant to the people you're dealing with. So. Uh, it's quite complex in a way and yeah. it's trainable, but it's it's not easy to find the right person to do it. And then maybe when you find them, they're that damn good. They're hard to keep a hold of as well. So yeah. th- that's a challenge we're facing. We've tried yeah. a couple of times to be able to release that. I, I think we're getting closer now, um, but that is, mm. that, that is not, and it's probably a reason why most in our, in our industry, end up pulling stuff off the shelf because it's so much easier yeah. to sell, so much easier yeah. to deal with and scale uh, in that sense. Yeah. But it's not as fun. <laughs> no. Well, they say, you know, love what you do and do what you love. And as long as you're actually answering that as an entrepreneur, it's the greatest question you should ask before making yourself redundant. And sometimes you just got to do it. You started it because you love it. And yeah. that's your part of doing it. I can't wait to speak with Richard Branson. I do have a couple of friends who are very, very close to him. Uh, in in regards to how does he make himself redundant so damn fast and how has he been able to do that for for a, yeah. a long time? And obviously, once you get to a certain size, you, you've got the capability of great people around you to be able mm. to do that for you. But early on, I'm really fascinated to dive yeah. deep into that um, side of things. Now, we all know smart people have great answers. But the most successful people ask great questions. So when was the last time you did something for the first time? Well, yeah, that's um, uh, that's a that's a very very good question. Um, I, I I would have to go to social media. I have to go in terms of the business when I actually had to do start my own Instagram account and actually make that because you know when I worked for Specsavers, I had a big company. And actually, when you become an entrepreneur, you suddenly realize going, yeah, I'm not surrounded by uh, 98 great people uh, opening company. And I think that opens up um, a lot of things. I think opened up things I love, which is obviously podcasting, but also things that I'm not keen on, um, which is uh, social media. Uh, Not keen on, I don't know. So I think for business, actually trying to understand what interests people on social media was a really big one mm. that comes comes through that. Um, and I think personally, uh, the one that's put the great, great, greatest pressure was when I took my 10-year-old godson um, 
uh, diving. Uh, and I think that took every leadership patient moment that I could possibly have ever done. I think I used up the tank in the first five minutes of breathing. Uh, so from a personal perspective, um, my challenge in terms of um, trying to bring uh, adventure to him in terms of diving, I think personally, how you learn to be patient and step by step and be wanting to explode with fear inside having to portray that in a way that you can take people with you was my greatest leadership challenge on a personal basis uh for sure but um these things sometimes these challenges of life come in forms where it's not directly in business uh but how to portray in a calm manner what you're not feeling inside very important Yes, my greatest leadership journey has just begun with a five-month-old baby who oh, it is a delightful baby, but you you learn a lot about leadership. Yeah, thank yeah. you. Yes. You learn a lot, which is great. <laughs> what is one question that you would love to solve? Okay, my question, I think, from the business that I want would love to solve is how can we put a monetary value on purpose. And I think with COVID, I think purpose and living purpose and all this stuff really did come to the highlight. I liked how companies just talked about it like it was a new thing. Well, purpose has been <laughs> around for a long period of time. But of course, post-COVID, how does everyone keep that purpose? What does it mean? And I believe that purpose is embedded in an organization. It's aligned with who you are, who you work with, how you work, as well as keeping your picture on the change that you want to make. And I believe that's got a monetary value. And I think that it's important that companies measure it. Uh, and obviously when you sell a company, you get goodwill, you get the value of your people, the value of knowledge, etc. But is that value and how you live on purpose. If it's so valuable today by who joins you, don't forget people are now choosing their job roles by the purpose of your company. If it's so valuable to our customer by choice, why have we not put a monetary value on it in the, P uh, in the P l or the accounts? And should it be time that we calculate uh, a value on how embedded purpose and doing the right thing is? Um, but that's a, a personal project of me and a financial consultant and a behavioral consultant of putting a value on purpose. And I think that there are many studies uh, with Harvard and, and uh, Boston Consult Group that say there is a monetary value. And um, so uh, during COVID in our little attics of choice, wherever we were in the world, we started this project on putting a value on purpose. And can we look at the value of doing the right thing and i think the answer is yes and i'd love that answer nice well we've got goodwill in uh in the balance sheet so if we can get purpose yes. into the p l we're moving in the right direction uh for you what is an inspiring great leader and who is a great example of this for you oh this uh well i mean i must admit uh what an example of of great leaders for me is, I have to say, I'm a bit biased, is the young people I work with today on making that change. And I think that we should uh, really embrace these young leaders that are trying to find these solutions for the future, um, be it in their own community at this moment, and, and support them to be able to take those great ideas and opening up doors, especially for women in terms of future investments that they need and if we can get them off on that right foot, um, I think that we are making big changes on making the world better and more sustainable and doing the right thing. So I have to hand it up to a lot of the young female leaders that I work with at the moment, I must admit, uh, rather than one individual. I think young leaders of today are good, for sure. And I embrace that one. Uh, we've had some fascinating insights in this uh, great conversation today. I'm curious, Julie, how can people learn more about what you do and what is the best way for people to connect with you? 
Well, um, I've got a website uh, or LinkedIn, websiteswiseminds.com, and it's wise with a Y because a young person told me I sounded too much like an old owl with an I, so I changed it to a Y. Um, uh, that's wisemice.com or LinkedIn. And there's loads of free stuff in there, loads of stories about entrepreneurs to get inspired from. So I'd say that was a great starting point. Brilliant. Well, we'll pop those links in the show notes. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today, uh, delving into the family business of Specsavers and seeing how you took on and somewhat conquered a new country and a new uh, I suppose, market in regards to um, setting up that business in the Netherlands, getting an insight into your entrepreneurial mindset and the way that you are passionate about the emerging entrepreneurs of this world. And I can really feel uh, a, a sense of why young people are attracted to you for help and can see that they're getting great benefit from you. Uh, your dad's insight into you know, writing down what do you see in five years time, I think is a great outlook on the way we should be considering both our life and, you know, for those as entrepreneurials, how can you um, be that step ahead? And, you know, for all the successful businesses and sports teams out there, they've remained relevant because they're predicting and have a very good sense of what is coming. They're not waiting to be reactive. And if you're an entrepreneur out there, think about how you can be proactive in the way that you see the world moving and understanding problems rather than being reactive. Because if you're reactive, you're a step behind your competition and you'll become irrelevant very, very fast. So Julie, thank you very, very much for your time. I've truly enjoyed this conversation and it went in areas I wasn't expecting, so thank you very much. Thank you for having me, Craig. Thank you very much. It's time for you to join the Inspiring Great Leaders movement by visiting craigjohns.com.au. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to hashtag Inspiring Great Leaders. We would love it if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the Craig Johns LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Inspiring Great Leaders podcast, where the ordinary don't belong.